You're listening to Red Ten Sisters, a podcast providing expert sisterly advice on women's most pressing reproductive and sexual health questions. This week on the podcast, we're talking to Marie Whitman of Art and Science of Balance about pelvic health and how it relates to aging, fertility, and reproductive health. Hi, Marie. Welcome. Hi, Amy and Kim. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here with you. Yeah, we're yeah, so can't wait to here. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to chat with you. So why don't we dive right in? Um, we've heard you talk about the aging process. So can you tell us a little bit about how the body ages and some of the factors that speed up or slow down that process? So usually my point when discussing age is that it's important to distinguish between age and aging. Most mm. times... When doctors, writers, health professionals, et cetera, talk about some health issue, and specifically here we're talking about fertility-related health issue, they connect the issue to age, and they do not either themselves or in conveying the message to us make the distinction between age and aging. And this has the effect of leaving us feeling disempowered and maybe even victimized by something we have no control over because our birthdays come once a year like <laughs> However, most times what information these professionals are referencing is our present scientific understanding of the biological process of aging. And in research, it's common practice to apply statistical data, a person's age, to things being studied. However, as I said, um, aging is a biological process. So, in fact, we do have some power over our aging. Actually, Aging is still kind of poorly understood in the scientific community. What is known about it at this time is that aging occurs when the rate at which cells regenerate or the accuracy at which cells, cells regenerate begins to change. So in other words, aging is a product of our cells not regenerating at the same rate as they did, say, five years ago. While some portion of this change in rate or agency, age, uh, accuracy may change quite naturally as we celebrate more birthdays, there are factors that are within our control that are influential on the aging process, such as either adequate or optimal balance of substances in and around the cell that would be like sodium, potassium, or calcium, for example, adequate or optimal removal of cellular waste, adequate or optimal delivery of hormones and energy and nutrients to cells. So our bodies have an amazing ability to self-regulate all these mechanisms in order to keep balance or homeostasis. However, what we eat or how we move greatly influences that self-regulation process. So take, for example, the fact that you go on a trip, you're traveling, and so the foods that you take in is definitely different, and maybe it has more salt than you normally consume. So your body will signal you to you'll give you thirst, and so you'll drink more liquid to help restore the balance of salt within the body. Even though the balance has been restored, there's actually still more salt within your body. So in the long term, while you have homeostasis again, there is a tax because your body has more salt than it did prior to you going on that trip. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. That's really fascinating, and I really love what you were saying about I think a lot of women feel disempowered. They feel like there's nothing they can do because, as you said, birthdays come every year. So it's it's really neat yeah. to hear you talk about some of the things that we do have control over. Mm -hmm. So, Marie, as you know, I work um, 
you know, with women with regards to fertility. And one of the things that I hear frequently is this kind of concern about, you know, the ticking clock, about Mm -hmm. the health of the eggs, about diminishing egg reserve. And so tell us a little bit about how this kind of issue of aging um, is particularly relevant to women who are experiencing fertility problems. Um, Well, I think this is, you know, aging is a really important factor for like the women you see and the women I see. And um, Mm -hmm. when I said that they don't know aging very well in the scientific community, they they don't understand it very well. They also are still, as much as they don't want to admit it, don't totally understand the process of oocyte development. And there is some research kind of challenging some of the older or more established, let's say, ideas about women's eggs and Mm -hmm. if we're born with them or if perhaps maybe there is some regeneration of them. So the science on that is still kind of, um, I wouldn't say it's factual yet. Yeah. Um, Although if you went to the doctor, they would say that it's factual. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But no matter what, whether we are born with our eggs or not, we can influence um, the health of the eggs by how we eat and how we move. Um, and so kind of what the statistic is now is if you are eating very healthy and moving, and movement is kind of my main um, discussion point, uh, three months from now, the eggs that you per, release will be a bit healthier than perhaps before if you're eating a lot of junk food and not sleeping well and drinking alcohol or just throw all the possible things that can affect your overall health in the scenario here. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think this is so interesting just because, you know, I was speaking to this woman um, about a week ago or a few days ago, and she was somebody who had bought one of my programs and she was charting her cycle and know she's in her 40s and so she had you know a lot of concerns about how she Mm. could optimize her health and her egg quality and when I looked at her charts and she was telling me all the things that she's done in the last few years I mean she's cut out gluten and she's you know completely gone organic and you know changed everything about her lifestyle really and when I looked at her chart I said you know honestly like what I'm seeing in your chart is healthier than a lot of like probably most of the 20 year olds that I see so it is so important to not be fixated on the issue of age because the, the lifestyle factors are so much um, bigger from what I can see anyway with my clients. And even with myself, you know, the beauty of charting is that I get to see this immediate feedback about, you know, even the changes that I make in my own life. And, you know, those last month when I was doing my move, you know, when I was eating terribly and I was, you know, drinking beer while I was packing my boxes and stuff, you know, I had like one of the worst menstrual cycles I've had in maybe like eight years of charting, (laughs) you know, but then things bounce back and, you know, I take care of myself and and things shift really quickly. So I love how the, the chart can really give feedback about that incredible role of the choices that we're making every day. Um, I am a huge advocate for charting because it's one more way, just as you're pointing out, for us to have signals about what's happening internally within our body. Because a lot of times we feel like we don't know what's happening. And so um, decisions we make might not feel like they're having an impact. And the charting, I think, really does. And I've noticed those differences for myself in my charting and I have mm-hmm. clients too that notice the difference. Um, but I think uh, it is really significant and, I, and I, 
it's an important message that I want to try and get out there is that you do see women that are young that have diminished ovarian reserve. And mm-hmm. you have women that are older that shouldn't, you know, according to science, be able to conceive or they're getting closer to menopause or whatever. And they are very healthy, and so they're having totally normal cycles and are able to conceive. And I think that um, one thing I like to try and just to give a little context, just to add a little bit more info to what we're seeing in this picture is the science and the research on menopause. And it just kind of informs, in my opinion, what we may or may not know about the female body. And whales and humans are the only species that have that go into menopause. And what age menopause sets in has changed over over centuries even, because there was mention of menopause um, in ancient times. And what age they said happened there, that, that menopause started, is different than what happened in the Middle Ages and things. So even something that seems like, okay, you're in your 40s, you're closing, getting close to menopause, that number is kind of, it shifts significantly from woman to woman. Um, mm-hmm. And it shifts over cultural periods of time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to pick up on a couple of things that you've mentioned, Anne-Marie, because you've made some historical references. And we know that you actually have a PhD in medical history. So I'm really curious how that training and your academic background informs your current practice with women and, and how you approach health. Um, well, my medical history degree is in um, sexuality and disease uh, in the 18th century. Um, so there is just some general knowledge about what they thought about women's cycles in that period and how midwives and surgeons and doctors in, engage within the profession and things like that that kind of influence my overall vision of medicine today. Um, So I think that I'm kind of aware and I consider broader factors that influence and shape medicine and science today. So like gender, culture, politics. Um, And we were just kind of talking about eggs and whether we're born with them or whether potentially they might now see that they kind of regenerate um, and create new ones. That, That idea that women are born with so many eggs at birth is from 1870, roughly. And then um, some science kind of came out around 1950, again, to kind of support that. And those periods in time, just as a historical context, are when women were doing a lot of activism for their place in society. Um, And some of that science is influenced by culture in general. um, And that climate of women being more involved in society could have influenced what scientists chose their questions to look at, what kind of conclusions they drew from it. Um, As much as science and medicine tries to be objective, there is, no matter what, an element of subjectivity in research. And I I think that kind of is something I definitely apply when I'm considering what my clients are coming to me with from their doctors, um, and mm-hmm. what kind of um, diagnoses been been, and, and kind of just pl- applying things like I mentioned about menopause. Um, so I also think I kind of consider like the nuances and complexity of medical and scientific understanding, rather than just seeing it as absolute as factual. Mm-hmm. I, I see that it changes. Facts change, and how we understand the body changes over time. Um, and 
this definitely just influences how I interpret a woman's diagnosis of infertility um, and maybe other health issues that she's facing when we when we have our consult. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a great segue into um, asking you to describe a little bit about the work that you do. So you've made reference to the fact that you know movement is your your passion and your area of work, and um, and so we'd love to hear a little bit about um, Mercier therapy, which I know is one of the treatment modalities that you use. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it is? Mm-hmm. So Mercier therapy is pelvic manipulation to restore function to the reproductive system. So it is helping increase blood flow and helping increase lymph away from the reproductive organs. Um, it can address scar tissues in the scar tissue in the pelvis. Um, it can realign uh, the reproductive organs. So sometimes because of a trauma, or I think I'm seeing even in women today just from habitual positioning of the body that they can have their uterus like pulled a little bit to one side and that pull to the side can affect how blood's moving to it and how lymph is moving away from it and you know blood circulation is important for the nutrients to get to the cells for the hormones to reach an area to trigger um, the actions that happen within the glands Uh, so alignment has a big uh, portion of the Mercier therapy. Um, it, it helps address hormonal function. It can help with um, healing from sexual trauma, PCOS, endometriosis, unexplained infertility, blocked fallopian tubes. Um, sometimes women come to it, Mercier therapy, not for fertility, but they come because maybe their periods are extremely painful or they have some kind of pelvic pain or they're looking to heal after birthing. Mm. Terrific. Wow, that's a lot, a lot that can help it with, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just going to jump in and say that I really love how it has a lot of parallels with the Arvigo massage, which, um, you know, some of our community know that I am uh, a practitioner of the Arvigo massage. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I love, because we talk about similar issues, you know, blood flow to uterus, positioning of the uterus, all of that. But I really love that the work that you do really empowers women um, to kind of shift that on their own through certain exercises and changes in the way that they may be, you know, sitting or doing various habitual tasks rather than, you know, necessarily having to rely on a practitioner, which might be kind of um, costly or it kind of puts your your health again in someone else's hands. And and a lot Mm. of people may not even have access to um, an Arvigo therapist in their area. So, you know, I really love that you can work by Skype and teach, you know, women how um, to shift these things and to do exercises that are really going to empower them to to change their their pelvic floor health. That's really awesome. Yeah, that part is actually um, not in Mercier therapy, but some of the movement for fertility uh, work that I've developed. And I think that because um, our, our Vico has a, a component of self-care that mm-hmm. Mercier doesn't. And so um, what I like that you're pointing out also is that through movement, we can do things on our own and take ownership of our health. And um, realistically, if we were all moving as much as we were in previous times where our survival, our daily survival depended on us moving a lot more than we do, like today, we don't have to do any movement to survive. Um, In the past, we wouldn't have had these kind of mechanical issues. That's my speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
<laughs> and we wouldn't need something intensive like Mercier therapy or, um, or massage therapy or something uh, where someone else is applying a technique to us because we would be moving that blood and that lymph and tissues would be regenerating themselves at a, at a better rate, at a healthier, proper rate, um, just naturally. Like, uh, just like I don't think we need supplements, we need food, and we might not be getting the, the nutrients we need from that, so we might need to supplement. I don't think that we need someone else to apply something to us to make us healthy. Like, we might not be doing it now, but it's within our power to do that. Mm-hmm. I love that. So can you just tell us a little bit what a session would look like? So if someone comes to you for, for one of these Mercier sessions, what would that entail? So the very first session would be a bit longer, and that involves um, a lot of chatting and talking about their full medical history. Um, and it's really fabulous when women come in with charts um, from their own charting of their menstrual cycle. Um, but that doesn't always happen. Um, and then the actual therapy involves an external manipulation of the ovaries and the uterus. So that's kind of getting the blood flow and the lymph circulation. Um, the manipulation will also restore proper function to the ligaments that hold the organs in place. So that kind of goes to the alignment that I was talking about. Um, and for the most part, women are just relaxing. <laughs> so um, some women find some of the manipulation uncomfortable, especially the uterine manipulation. Um, I don't. Uh, I've had other women that they're like, yeah, it's not the most pleasurable thing, but it's not bad. Um, mm-hmm. But for the rest of it, it's just an opportunity to lay back and relax um, and also kind of sometimes go through the long duration of going, processing the fertility journey. So the first session, someone might not be super chatty, but by like the fifth time of seeing each other, which has been over five weeks then, um, people are being a little bit more open about how uh, the whole fertility journal journey has been impacting their life. And so it can uh, um, act as an additional support system for women when they're going through either trying to conceive naturally or if they are doing assisted reproductive uh, technology. Um, I do do a tiny bit uh, of consulting, I would say advising rather than prescribing, diet and lifestyle choices. Um, We can also kind of consult on navigating through the process of um, assisted reproductive technology if they're doing that. And then beyond the six sessions, because we see people for about six sessions usually, um, we still monitor them for the next coming year and offer support through phone calls or emails or Skype consultations um, to kind of just be an advocate for women as they're going through. And that's counselor in a way, um, going through the process of trying to conceive. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Marie, tell us a little bit about some of the most condom, common uh, condom. What are some of the most common symptoms that you see in the women that you work with? Like, I know um, you've talked a little bit about the fertility, but I know you work with women with other kind of reproductive and sexual health challenges. So, what are some of the kinds of things that women come to you with? Um, For the Mercier therapy, I tend to see women who have been 
diagnosed with unexplained infertility mm -hmm. or um, some kind of hormonal imbalance. Uh, what I, I tend to see in those women when my own assessment, because I'm not a medical doctor, um, mm -hmm. is an assessment that the uterus is not aligned or the ovaries are not aligned, um, that the organs don't have a, got a lot of motility, like within the body they're not responding to the natural movement um, of the external portion of the body. Like our organs should move naturally when we breathe and when we walk, um, just responding to like organs above the pelvic cavity. Um, and sometimes they can not be because of scar tissue or things like that, and that affects their function. Um, I also see with women who are struggling with fertility uh, a lack of sacrum mobility. Um, and that's something that I also have seen a lot of women for pregnancy or postpartum where they're having some kind of pelvic floor issues. Um, the sacrum won't be very mobile. Uh, so out, beyond Mercier therapy, I tend to see women um, postpartum. They tend to come to me with like diastasis recti where the abdominal muscles are starting to separate. Um, or hernias sometimes, um, various pelvic floor issues like stress incontinence, um, or a pelvic organ prolapse. And uh, that is more of a movement uh, protocol, so it's not the medical therapy with them. I do the movement um, training and alignment training. And um, that is really rewarding and exciting because a lot of um, women are able to avoid surgeries and things um, being inserted into the body to try and help keep the organs in. They retrain their body and they retrain their movement so that the muscles and tissues can restore to return to supporting those um, within the body and not having them pressed down on another part or not coming out of the body. Mm. <laughs> That's terrific. Yeah, one of, one of the things I really love about your work, Marie, is like you've got all these different modalities and you find ways to incorporate all of them with your clients. And one of the things that I know you teach is Pilates, um, which Amy and I both have done Pilates throughout the years. And it's actually one of the only forms of exercise that I found to be really helpful for my back because I've actually found that yoga makes uh, my back issues worse, whereas Pilates mm. helps. So I'm just wondering if you can um, share a little bit with our listeners about Pilates for those who are not familiar, maybe some of the differences between Pilates and yoga. Um. Well, I think that if you're comparing Pilates and yoga that tends to be within the mainstream, so like more popular, like if you compare gym, gym yoga to Pilates um, in a gym also, uh, there isn't going to be a very strong distinction because um, they've kind of been adapted for that mainstream population where mm – -hmm. If you go to some studio where the teachers have been studying yoga for years, it tends to have a, a bit more of a spiritual component, and Pilates um, doesn't necessarily, although Joseph Pilates himself believed that coordinating the body and the mind and the spirit was an important part of health, it doesn't have um, like a meditation component, let's say. Uh, right. I think in general, yoga tends to be more geared towards a passive stretching aspect, um, where Pilates is a bit more about strengthening and doing an active stretching. So usually you'll be stretching a tissue or muscle tissue um, 
in the process of moving in Pilates rather than holding a position such as like downward facing dog as you would in yoga. Um, and so I think the kind of the goals of yoga and Pilates are different. Um, the goal for yoga really from my understanding is to go through a process physically so that you can get into a meditative state uh, mentally um, where Pilates' goal is more of trying to balance your physique so that way you would have a healthy body within. Um, there's a, there's a, a lot of similarities, and that's, I think, why people kind of get confused. But when you mm-hmm. look a little bit more at the heart of the two disciplines, you can kind of see the distinctions there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, yoga is based on kind of like very ancient um, right. approaches, as you said, to kind of meditation. And it was, I think, very much linked in with spiritual practices of the time. And mm-hmm. I think some of that has become somewhat divided in pop culture, but those who are really serious about yoga are, are usually quite serious about those spiritual aspects as well. Yeah. Yeah. I ha- I highly recommend people doing either either one and whichever one they're choosing, trying to find a very experienced and trained teacher, whether they're, mm-hmm. they're taking um, classes or videos or things like that. Generally, at a gym, you're not going to have a and this is generalized, a teacher that's done a lot of training. Um, And you'll find if someone, again, I'm going to generalize this, if someone's going to teach like Pilates, yoga, and step aerobics, then they're not having spent a lot of time in the training. I mean, there's like yoga instructors that spend 10 years studying. And same thing with Pilates. There's teachers that spend a long time getting that education. And they're going to have a better understanding of, the essence of the move, the movements that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that there couldn't be someone at a gym, but generally there isn't. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Marie, you've alluded to some of the, um, you know, shifts in our kind of lifestyle um, over mm-hmm. the past hundreds and maybe thousands of years. Um, and the fact that a lot of us don't really have to move much in our day. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the impact of those activities, like, for example, sitting at a computer all day and how people can kind of make some simple adjustments to their daily routines or lifestyles to kind of try to get back into a, a state of better health? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a subject I could talk about for hours now. <laughs> um, so I'll try to be, I'll try to, I'll try to be concise. Um, but overall, there's a lot of one, we don't have to move very much, so we could um, work from home like uh, I do. And so um, I can go from my bedroom to my office and do some work, and it's not going to require me to have even walked very much, let's say. Um, and people that work in an office, they get in a car for the most part um, and then drive to work or maybe people in um, areas that have good public transit, they'll get on, they'll walk to the underground station or tube or whatever and get but get on the public transit, but then sit down and then go to an office and sit down. Um, so that will have an impact on blood circulation specifically because we're talking about reproductive issues here. Um, 
within the pelvic region. Uh, and there'll also be a lot of um, lymph, lymph waste or cellular waste not being moved because it requires our muscular action to move the lymph away from a cell. And so that will eventually over time lead to the cell not functioning properly and cells are what make up tissues and organs. And so you'll, you'll end up having some diminished function um, in the pelvic organs. So sitting less at work, um, sitting less also in leisure time. I just saw a study about that. Uh, there's been tons of studies about sitting at work and, and it's important also too, like if on your weekend off, you spend the whole day on the couch um, or going to a movie uh, or sitting in a car driving somewhere, those will all be at time periods of sitting that will impact um, pelvic health. Uh, sitting on the floor, though, is a good way to still sit because <laughs> it's, it's not that we shouldn't sit ever. I'm not saying that. Um, but it will be a different configuration of the joints. And so um, it will change how blood flow happens. And it will also be something that's a little less comfortable so people tend to move more frequently in sitting on the floor. You just can't sit on the floor for eight hours like you could on a couch. Um, so yeah, standing. I'm going to interrupt you there because I, yeah. I I love that you've you've shared this with um, Kim and I a few times. This idea of that it's actually good when you're sitting or sleeping or whatever to be, you know, in situations where you're not comfortable because it forces you to move, which is something I had never considered before. And I know. So, I love when you said that the first time. I just thought it was hysterical. And it's, <laughs> yeah, it stayed with me the whole time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's actually not good if you're comfortable because, as you said, you're staying in the same position for long periods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, um, I'm glad you you took that away because I think that's the, the most important thing. Like, static position is really the issue as far as um, when people are looking at health. So all the studies and all the articles that are coming out and people are talking a lot about sitting versus standing – Standing can be a static position too, although mm -hmm. for most people it will require a lot, a lot more muscular activity that they haven't had lately, so they'll, they'll shift a lot more. But trans realistically what happened was people were standing at work a lot and they found problems, so they transitioned to sitting. So now we have a problem with sitting, where in the past, <laughs> you know, years ago they had a problem with standing. So it's the staticness that's the issue, not so much mm -hmm. whether it's stand standing or sitting, like we could find lying down positions, which we actually know lying down leads to issues with health, too. So it's just the staticness, I think. And I just wanted to clarify one thing. So when you're talking about sitting on the floor, is there a particular position you're, you're mentioning? Like, for instance, like, are you thinking, like, uh, legs crossed or your legs are open? Or, again, I guess it's about the moving around when you're sitting on the floor still. Exactly. Yeah, it's sitting in different positions. Um, the one thing I would say is trying to avoid sitting on the sacrum, like that sitting rolled back on the pelvis, kind of on the tailbone area, um, because that will affect uh, the ligaments that help hold the uterus in place, um, as well as pelvic floor issues or function. But um, moving around and sitting in all different, sitting with your legs stretched out like in a V-sit or with the legs crossed or sit with one leg crossed or sit with your toes curled under or your toes not curled under. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in, to move around and sit um, on the floor. And also just getting down to the floor and getting back up from the floor is something that most people don't do unless they're going to a class or a Pilates class um, <laughs> mm -hmm. where, you know, the work is on the floor and then they get up and they go home and the rest of their day is not requiring them to do any more 
knee flexion than sitting down in a chair. Um, so just the practice of getting up and down from the floor is also really good for health too. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, but that makes sense that even the act of getting onto the floor takes muscles. That's interesting. Yeah, and mm -hmm. if you you pay attention to the older population, getting down to the floor is something they can't do because they haven't mm -hmm. been doing it. And so that looks back on us. So if we're not getting down and up from the floor frequently, then eventually that would happen to us where we couldn't get down and up from the floor when we're older. Mm -hmm. Right. So just to sort of expand on this idea of the things that we do every day that we can make minor adjustments to, I know that I was really surprised to learn that some of the stretches that I've been taught over the years, I was actually doing incorrectly. So Marie, can you share a few of the common stretches that people maybe are not doing correctly and some of the modifications they could do to make them better? Um, over a, a podcast, I will do my best. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the biggest thing is um, people and also teachers. I see a lot of teachers when they're teaching stretches or movements, um, they're not paying attention to where the joints are in relationship to each other of whatever muscle you're trying to um, stretch. So uh, there'll be two attachment points for a muscle or, or sometimes more. Um, and if the joints are kind of out of alignment, then what you're stretching isn't what you're designing or intending to stretch. Um, some people might still feel a stretch, um, but Sometimes um, that sensation of stretching can also be an issue of people chasing uh, a good hamstring stretch, and that can actually go beyond what the muscle tissue can actually stretch um, and into the elastic portion um, of tissue. And so you won't ever in get any change because you keep going into the elastic part, which elastic will just bounce back. Um, so I think tips I would say is in a stretch, go to the extreme where you feel, and don't go so extreme that you're going to damage the tissue, but go to an area where you feel an intense stretch and then back out of it little bit by little bit by little bit to start seeing if you can still feel a sensation a little bit further away from that intense kind of stretch. Uh, trying to get the joints in the right place. Um, so a lot of times like the hamstring stretches where people either bend forward to touch their toes or they're sitting on the floor with their legs stretched out and they try to touch their toes. A lot of times people do that stretch and they end up moving more of their spine than really getting the hamstring to stretch. Um, so as, as someone could, I would suggest maybe paying attention to some anatomy books or break out your old science books and look at the pelvis and see where the um, sit bones are or technically the ischial tuberosities. So you can kind of visualize that when you're doing your hamstring stretch and think of moving those bones, the ischial tuberosities, by moving your pelvis as far away from the back of the knee, a straight knee, as possible. I don't know if that description mm -hmm. will help <laughs> um, in a in a podcast but um, yeah. or like a, a quad stretch is a very common one and, and most people when they do that stretch their knee will be um, to the side from their hip so that um, will decrease the stretch of the quadricep muscles or the knee will be positioned forward of the pelvis and that will also decrease the stretch um, of one of the quad muscles 
So getting that knee directly underneath the hip and close to the other knee is kind of an easy way of getting a better stretch in the quad stretch. Mm-hmm. That's, That's great. And I think that works. Go ahead, Ames. No, it's okay. Go ahead. I was going to say, I just really love that that reminds me a lot of, if you can sort of tell your background, especially around the Pilates, at least in my experience of, of taking Pilates classes, is these minor adjustments. Like I remember sometimes doing Pilates um, exercises where I didn't, like when she showed the exercise, I was like, it doesn't look like you're doing anything, but it's these minor <laughs> adjustments that can make such a huge difference. I know for me, when I learned what you were just talking about with the quad stretch, that I was definitely not really paying attention to the alignment. And then that minor adjustment, I could feel the stretch in a very different way. So I think there's mm-hmm. a lot to just being conscious about stretching. And I know for myself that because I've been doing some of these stretches for so long that I didn't necessarily think about what I was doing. So even just the act of being more aware of, of the alignment made a huge difference. Yeah, and also thinking, um, I think just like uh, we tend to think of exercise as something that you do for 45 minutes a day in a particular place or you go for a class, um, again, our body doesn't need exercise, like it doesn't need supplements, it needs movement. Um, and so just like you don't need to do a 15-minute stretch protocol to get difference um, in your flexibility, you can do things where you're changing your joint configurations, which changes how the muscles is lengthened, and that technically is stretching. So instead of sitting, you know, for an hour with your legs bent, just getting up and straightening your legs, that's actually stretching the hamstring muscle. It might not be what people tend to think of as stretching, but it is. Yeah, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. Great. And I know you've got lots of great resources um, to share and, you know, some some pictures of some of these exercises that, you know, people can can get from you. So it's actually a great lead in to to asking you, you know, how people can find you if they'd like to learn more or work with you. Can you share with our, our listeners how they can learn more? Um, I have a website where I do some posts and then kind of talk about the work in general, and that's artandscienceofbalance.com. I also have a Facebook and Instagram uh, account for Art and Science of Balance, and then a Twitter account, which is at La Pilatessa, (laughs) um, uh, which is L-A-P-I-L-A-T-E-S-S-A. so those are the best ways, I think, to get in touch. But I'm very happy to um, field emails and calls when people are so bold because most people tend not to do that. <laughs> they feel like they're imposing. But um, I welcome questions. So That's terrific. work, too. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing all your, your wisdom and expertise with us, Marie. I really love yeah. how it's um, such a different perspective on – you know, something that we hear a lot about and and that, it, as I said earlier in the call, just really um, emphasizes how women can kind of help themselves, which, you know, we're all about at Red Tent Sisters is, you know, self-empowerment. So thank you for, for sharing all those wonderful tips and, uh, and for joining us today. Well, thank you, um, Kim and Amy. I'm very happy to be in contact with you both because I respect you very much and your work um, is something I reference all the time with my clients and in my work as well. Mm-hmm. Aw, thank Perfect. you. <laughs> That's wonderful. All right. Thanks very much and take care. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to Red Tent Sisters, the podcast. We're Kim and Amy Sedgwick, co-founders of Red Tent Sisters, a business dedicated to providing holistic fertility, sexuality, and contraceptive solutions. If you have something you'd like to share about this week's topic, we invite you to join the conversation on our Facebook page. Or if you have a question you'd like to hear addressed on the show or have an expert you'd like to see interviewed here, please send us an email at bestsisters at redtensisters.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Red Ten Sisters, the podcast, for more great tips on how to resolve your feminine concerns and live a vibrant, passionate life naturally. Thanks for listening.